Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. When Coventry City won the FA Cup in 1987, the city celebrated with an open-top bus parade. The team goalkeeper was Steve Grizovic. It was supposed to take about 45 minutes, I think, and there were just hundreds of thousands of people. It was three and a half hours later, we still weren't at the council offices. A decade later, Coventry needed a win on the last day of the season to avoid relegation. Steve Grizovic took a pre-match walk with a teammate, which took them past the city's cathedral. We both went in, said a little prayer for Coventry, <laughs> came out, and lo and behold, we won the game, stayed up. He played 500 times for the Sky Blues, still a club record. You see a lot of footballers that will move around every two or three years. That really wasn't for me, if I could help it. I don't think it's healthy for family life. This is Made in the Midlands, an original commission by the Coventry UK City of Culture, hosted by Adrian Goldberg. Regional identity and difference are all the rage at the moment, which made me wonder, what is a Midlander? Are we forever doomed to adopt a form of negative identification? Not Northern, not Southern, etc. So I'm asking high achievers from the Midlands, what do they think makes us distinct from the Cornish, Geordies and Scousers, who all seem to have a clearer idea of themselves? Join me on a voyage of self-discovery. Episode 7, Steve Grizovich. Affectionately known as Oggy, Steve grew up in Nottinghamshire. A talented footballer and cricketer, he signed for Liverpool in 1977. He was their number two goalkeeper and won two European Cup medals in one of the best club sides Britain has ever produced. He joined Coventry City in 1984 and was still there 16 years later. Adrian spoke to Steve at an event in Coventry's Sky Blue Tavern. 
Would you please put your hands together and welcome Steve Agrizovich. Thank you. You've lived and worked virtually all of your life in the Midlands. What does the Midlands mean to you? Ooh, good question. Uh, well, it has been my life. You know, I was born in Mansfield, uh, brought up in Sutton and Ashfield, and then the football clubs I've played for, with the exception of Liverpool, have all been Midlands-based, Chesterfield, Shrewsbury, and, of course, Coventry City. And even, even when I was at Liverpool, I used to travel back home to Mansfield, I was going out with a girl in uh, Chesterfield who I eventually married. So, uh, yeah, spent my whole life, really, give or take a few days here and there in the Midlands. We've talked to quite a few people on the podcast about that sense that people from the north think that we're southerners. <laughs> people from the south think that we're northerners. Do you think that there is a real Midlands identity? Uh Probably, probably not. I mean, we, you're either north or south, aren't you? And we're, we're the bit in the middle. Well, I like to think that, you know, like you do with your biscuits and everything, you've got that little bit in the middle. It's usually the best bit, isn't it? <laughs> the tasty bit, yeah, yeah. And uh, when you grew up in Sutton and Ashfield, you were sort of between Sutton and Ashfield and Mansfield. Did you feel part of the Midlands at that point growing up? Uh, well, we did do. We, we knew we were Midlanders, but uh, I do think to, you know, people particularly based Birmingham way, West Midlands, you know, we, we were more right on the fringes. Maybe, you know, people looked at us as probably more towards Yorkshire. And indeed, even though we were in the Midlands, the TV that we used to get invariably was Yorkshire. So we'd get a cracking picture from Yorkshire TV, put Midlands TV on, you couldn't see anything. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us a little bit about your family background. Uh, well, my, my father's Yugoslav. He was a farmer as a, as a young child, 14, when uh, the Germans came into his small village. He was a, a Serb living in Croatia at the time. And I don't understand a lot of what happened because my dad wouldn't talk about a lot of things except the fact that the villagers knew that they if they stayed they had to uh, well basically they would be joining the germans or or they run and my dad's uh, dad actually said look you've got to go and as they came in they just started running from the village hundreds of them and uh, it was a long field there was a river at the bottom of it and then they were in the forest and he just kept running and running and running the germans opened up on the, the people who were running away my dad just got there, got into the water, he got uh, into the forest, and it was only when he got into the forest that he realised he was, he was wearing a trench coat and it was flapping as he was running. And he looked down, he'd got bullet holes down either side of his trench coat. And it, it's a chilling story, really. And uh, my, my dad never, ever glorified the war years. In fact, he always says that he just spent those years on the run. And indeed, he, he lived for the war years, two years, actually in the forest trying to get to Italy, which they eventually managed to get to. Get to. And he was put in a transition camp there uh, at the end of the war. So and, very, and was... very lucky to survive, really. Yeah, and he had a choice to make, didn't he? Well, he did at the end of the war. It was a case of, right, because he'd left the village the way it was, it wasn't a case of going back. It was a case of, right, where do you want to repatriate? And he had a choice of going to Australia and being a farmer or coming to England and being a miner. 
Now, my dad was, he'd been a farmer, he'd lived all his life on his farm. And I don't know if he had a few mates that had decided they were going to England. And for some weird reason, I'm pleased he did choose England, but for some weird reason, he decided, do you know what? I'm going to have a change of uh, vocation. I'm going to go to England. I'm going to go down the pits. And that's what he did for most of his life. Yeah, you've never regretted it on his behalf, have you? <laughs> well, I don't know. When, it, when it's a cold day, I always think, do you know, Australia would be quite nice. <laughs> What was it like in Sutton in Ashfield then? What what was life life like in a mining village in the Midlands in in what the sixties as you were growing up? Yeah, it would be. Yeah, it was a working class town. Most people had relations or family that were working down the pit. I mean, you know, I was looking in in a ten or fifteen mile radius of uh, Mansfield. You, there were twenty or thirty pits, and uh, lots and lots of people working in them. So. Uh, Wherever you went, your friends generally had uh, fathers or brothers or, you know, this, that and the other that were that were working down the pit or associated with the pit. Yeah, and obviously it's mining family, and I'm guessing you weren't particularly well off. No, working class. You know, my dad used to work seven days a week. There were three of us. I've got a brother and a sister. Uh, my mum used to go to work. She trained to be a nurse. Very often, we wouldn't see my dad for a week, you know, if, if he's on nights or, you know, something like that. Uh, he'd be asleep when we came in. We'd probably nip out and play football. By the time we got back, he'd, he'd gone to work. And if there was any overtime going, they, he just did it. And there were lots of overtime in those days. But the one thing that my dad always said is, you will never, ever follow me down the pit. He was absolutely adamant about that. That's how brutal the life was. He says yeah. it's no life for anybody. It was the life that he chose. He would work as long as it took. But uh, he said it was no life for, you know, the kids and there was no way ever we would have ever gone down the pit. He wouldn't have allowed it. Was there that real sense of solidarity in the area? Oh, without any shadow of doubt there was. And I think you can see that, see that with, the, uh, with the problems that they had with the pit closures, with the strikes. I mean, I went through a, the first strike in the early 70s. People of a certain age, I'm sure you'll remember when we used to have the power cuts and three-day weeks and everything like that. We were part of it. And, you know, at school, we were allowed tokens to have free dinners. And uh, you had to queue up and, you know, go for these tokens. It was quite embarrassing at times, but that's the way the life was. Uh, there was not a lot of money about. And, uh, you know, the miners were having it pretty rough, certainly in those early times. Mm. You mentioned a little bit about your, about your mum being a nurse. What else can you tell us about your mum? Well, my mum, she doesn't know a lot about her upbringing because she was adopted. She was brought up uh, by her adopted parents in Nottingham. She, she did get inquisitive, but uh, her adopted dad wouldn't allow her, you know, in those days, uh, it's not like it is now probably, but uh, there was no way that she was allowed any access to uh, any documents or anything like that that could find out where her parentage was and uh, where she was born, etc. And you're growing up in this mining town and you've got by most people's standards, an unusual name. What people would have said was a was a funny name and at least one side of your family through your dad came from somewhere else. Uh, the Midlands was a place of refuge for your family as it has been for many people over the years. Were you conscious of that? Growing? Yeah, I mean, in Mansfield, there was a, a massive contingent of uh, Yugoslavs, particularly Poles, a lot of Poles and... Uh, Probably I noticed it most of the time when I used to go into town with my dad and he'd meet one of his friends and then they start talking Yugoslav and uh, <laughs> after what seemed like an hour but it was only probably 20 minutes I was bored stiff, didn't know what to do. <laughs> Couldn't, didn't know what they were saying and, uh, and that happened time and time again. It used to drive me up the wall. 
Yeah, yeah. But did people ever kind of pick on your name and think that's a bit unusual, or were you too tall for them to met for to mess with? <laughs> well, my mum used to say actually when she was a nurse, she used to say, "Do you know the funny thing with having a name like Aguzovic is uh, nobody will ever forget you." Now that can be good or bad depending <laughs> what you've done. Most people, not so much now, funnily enough, but in those days could never pronounce it. And uh, you forever telling people, even my first manager, Arthur Cox at Chesterfield, called me a Grozovic. <laughs> and, and it stuck because in those early days, you know, if you, uh, you know, if you read some press reports or even looked at the programme, it would be in goal for Chesterfield, Steve O'Grozovic. <laughs> and, uh, and then the other funny thing was, it actually helps me now because I'm not brilliant with names and faces, but uh, I've had two names. Uh, so I'm known as Oggy through through my football. Generally, most people say Oggy, but uh, in Mansfield, when I was brought up, it was Grizz. So what happens now? Sometimes, occasionally, you can be out somewhere. You might be on holiday, and somebody will go, "Hey, Grizz," and if they say that, I know I know them from school, from Mansfield. And if it's Oggy, it's from football. <laughs> What was your schooling like? Were you any good at school? Uh, I think so. I'm not sure the teachers <laughs> did. Uh, yeah, not bad. Not bad. The brains was with me, my sister. My brother was pretty clever. And uh, I was the one that had the rest of it, really. But I was a trier. <laughs> so uh, generally used to stay in the good books with, uh, with the school teachers. But I loved school. And uh, mainly the reason why I loved school was we had a good set of friends. But we had a really, you know, there was lots of sport to play. And that, more than anything, drove you to want to go to school. If ever you had a day off with a, you know, headache or something like that that uh, you'd invented, it was invariably a day where you didn't have a football match or there was no training of anything else. You live for sport and that's what got you to school. Yeah. Were there any teachers that you can remember in, with particular fondness? Yeah. There was Jimmy Waring and Keith Ilsley. They were the sports teachers. Fantastic people. We didn't know it then, but, you know, they were putting hours in way above and beyond what they needed to do. There was lots of organised activities, football, athletics in the summer. When did it become obvious that you were going to be a goalkeeper? Uh Right, well, what I used to do was playing goal for the, the Saturday team, the youth team, and I'd be a striker for the school team, and I mixed and matched. But I suppose I, I really, I, I knew I'd got the goalkeeping genes, basically, because when I used to play with, with, with the mates, invariably I was the one that spent most of the time in goal. So I'd always volunteer to be the goalkeeper. I'd have my turn outfield. Then I'd find my way back in goal, and... Uh, that's the way it was. So the, the genes must have been there at an early age. Yeah. And am I right in thinking that you had, did you have any trials for other teams before you got spotted by Chesterfield? I did, yeah. Well, I lived on the doorstep of Mansfield. I would love to have played for Mansfield Town because they were the team that I used to watch every Saturday. They had a really good side at the time, so I would love to have played for them. But they, they always felt I was too tall, too gangly, and couldn't get down to the low ones. And, uh, you know, it's amazing because, you know, in this day and age, you're looking for goalkeepers who are as big as you possibly can. Not then. If you were five foot 11, six foot, you had a chance of playing in goal. If you were six foot four, as I was as a teenager, too big. Mm. I remember once going to Huddersfield and watching the first team, second team game, and, and then we had a game of football. Uh, they said they'd give me a ring. Well, I'm still waiting. <laughs> uh, probably the closest I came was Notts County. They must have seen me play a few times. 
And uh, I made the mistake of being out one night when they knocked at the door. Unfortunately, my dad uh, opened the door and they said, oh, we're from Notts County, we're scouts, etc. We'd quite like to take your, uh, your son for a trial, etc. And my dad was having none of it. He said, no, he's damn well going to get an education. <laughs> <laughs> that was the last I heard of those two. <laughs> Oh, talking of goalkeepers, then that brings us to your Midlands hero. Yes, it does, and it's uh, not difficult really because uh, I always think, you know, what influenced me to be a goalkeeper, and in those very early stages, it was without any shadow of doubt, Gordon Banks. I mean, he was he was a World Cup winner, I mean, crikey, World Cup winner. Not only that, he was regarded as the best goalkeeper in the world, and. I just used to love watching him whenever I could. If there was any televised footage and Gordon Banks was playing, then, you know, you, you were trying to uh, do it. And, you know, when you think about somebody like Gordon Banks, I mean, he's, got, he's made some terrific saves and he's had some terrific performances. The majority, 99% of what he did has been lost to the world. It was live. There were no TV recordings. And nobody will ever see them again. In this day and age, if you're 14 or 15, you can watch every single game you've played as many times as you want because everything is recorded. So uh, watching live football and, uh, you know, the odd glimpses of things were on television were gold. And you made every effort possible to be there to watch them. And uh, Gordon Banks was probably the main reason why I decided to put the gloves on and be a goalkeeper. Yeah, he was usually successful. Man of the Midlands, I think. Did he start at Chesterfield? Started at Chesterfield, Same like me, yeah, yes. Yeah. Uh, had a good spell at Leicester. Uh, was in the FA Cup final in the early 60s with Leicester a couple of times, I think, and finished his major playing, really, with Stoke. And above and beyond that, played for England. Oh, I don't know how many caps, must have been 70, 80, 90 caps. Yeah, I'm just thinking, you know, I mean, we're all Midlands football fans here, and... It's uh, one of our other podcast guests, um, Lee Child, said that, you know, if Lionel Messi became available, uh, I know, unlikely, but he almost certainly would go to a club in London or Manchester. He wouldn't think of a club, any club in the Midlands, you know, just playing on that. And yet we are an area of great football passion and great football rivalries. Absolutely. And, and the problem is, is you know, when you come into uh, this country, London is generally the place people want to live. Look at Newcastle at the moment. I mean, they're going to have riches beyond the means, but will they be able to attract the very, very best players up there? It's going to be a lot more difficult. If they're based in London, they could do it almost overnight. Mm. I'm just intrigued by this sense, though, that, you know, here in the Midlands, we have got a great football culture. Yeah, it's not acknowledged, I don't think, beyond the Midlands? Well, I'd like to think it is acknowledged. I mean, you know, everybody can remember Aston Villa's exploits. Uh, I don't like to say that uh, with so many commentary people. But, but uh, you know, they, they did win the uh, League One Championship and the European Cup. Uh, obviously, we won the FA Cup in 87. Leicester won the Cup a few uh, <laughs> last year. The champ, the, you know, the, the, the premises. So, you know, th there is a lot of, uh, you know, good football in uh, pedigree, I think, in this area. And a lot of very good footballers as well, past and present. In terms of your own career, then, once your dad had sent Notts County away <laughs> with a flea in their ear, at first, you didn't become a goalkeeper, you didn't become a footballer. Well, no, because uh, I, was, I was told I was too, too tall and uh, I kept getting turned away from all these clubs. So uh, I thought, right, what do I do? I stayed on at school for a year and then I thought, you know what, this is not for me because I was spending more time playing football, cricket in the summer. find it hard to revise. That wasn't turning me on at the time. 
And so I decided, right, I've got to do something, earn some money. So uh, I joined the police force and I thought that was going to be my vocation in life. I was going to play football when I could, I was going to play cricket when I could, but yeah, that was going to be the vocation. What was it like being in the police? Really enjoyed it. I had a year, whole year on the beat, being six foot four. When I first joined in, I thought, right, it'd be nice to be in Mansfield. I'll see a few of my mates and uh, <laughs> they'll, they'll be quite impressed. I'll be driving a car. They can have a ride with nothing like that. <laughs> you know, the first thing they said, you know, you're going to be in Nottingham City Centre. I says, why? He said, well, you're above six foot two, six foot three. I said, what difference does that make? He says, no, they want all the muscle down in the city. <laughs> and the reason was, Fridays, Saturdays uh, particularly, was manic. During the football uh, games, everybody came through the station. They wanted a police presence physically as well as uh, by numbers. And a lot of my years spent at Friday and Saturday nights was a case of walking into pubs, telling people to drink up, emptying the pubs on time, and then just waiting for the calls for all the mayhem to kick off in the nightclubs, <laughs> which it invariably did. Did, it, did you ever, ever have any real scrapes? Uh, well, you, you did, but there was always enough of us, thankfully. The funniest thing that happened to me is I was, I was sent to a domestic, and it was on my first one, so I was this, you know, pimply uh, teenager, really. And uh, this man and woman were going at it hammer and tongue. I thought, what do I do? I, you know, I was 18, 19 year old here trying to tell somebody in the 40s how to lead their lives. And uh, I walked in and I've got my helmet on. And as I walked in to the door, I was going in, my helmet flew off. <laughs> and the pair of them just stopped and started laughing. <laughs> and that was the best remedy. They were as good as gold after that. So uh, I do remember that. Embarrassing, but it did the trick. So you could have had a decent career as a copper by the sounds of it. You were enjoying yourself. But... Well, uh, I enjoyed it as well, yeah. Adrian, because uh, they were very good for sport in those days. So if you're a good footballer, cricketer, whatever, you got time off to play. And that's something that appealed to me as well. And they, they played at good standards. They had good players. It's a good way of being able to uh, potentially achieve a sporting uh, career without actually being a professional. I was actually, at the time, mind playing for Chesterfield as a youth team player. So there was, you know, a potential chance that one day they might take me. Yeah, and football did come knocking then. So yeah. tell us how that happened, because it was well, quite a meteoric rise, really, wasn't it? Well, it was, and it was, it was lucky, really, because I went to play for this Sunday football club, and a guy called Alan Humphreys, he was the commercial manager of Chesterfield and an ex-goalkeeper. And, you know, we, we went on trial to this football club with my mate, Phil Walker, and he, lo he took one look at both of us and said, do you know what, I'm going to take you two down to, car uh, to Chesterfield for a trial and that's what he did we went down to Chesterfield they liked what they saw in the trials we played for the youth team and I just thought well we'll have a good year and, and see where it takes us I didn't realistically think that you know I'd probably get anywhere near being asked to sign professional but uh, the other thing you know is getting time off because we worked shifts uh, and we had a good sergeant actually who allowed me to take my leave every Saturday. Sometimes I'd come off nights at seven, eight o'clock in the morning, drive straight to Chesterfield, playing a game, played in the mornings in those days, and hoping that, you know, they would think one day I'd be good enough to play. I was probably lucky that I actually got signed because Arthur Cox was the manager, and uh, he came to watch us. It was one of those days where everything goes right for you. I saved the penalty, my handling was good, and in the summer he called me in and uh, asked me if I wanted to be a professional footballer. 
course, obviously I said yes. <coughs> he says, well, it means you've got to leave the police force. I said, yeah, I understand that. I'll talk to my dad about that. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he started talking money then. He says, right, what are you on in, uh, in the police force? I said, 45 pounds a week. He says, he says I can't pay that. <laughs> He says, I'll give you £35 a week, £5 expenses, and if we get a good gate, you get some crowd bonus as well. And uh, I snapped his hand off. <laughs> so how did Liverpool come about? So I started pre-season 1977. The first team goalkeeper at the time had got a little bit of a bad shoulder. Uh, Arthur Cox came into me and says, I'm starting your first game of the season. I kid you not, we're playing Port Vale away in front of 4,000 people. I thought I was at Wembley in front of 100,000 people. It, I was so nervous. I thought, this is my lifelong dream. I never ever thought I would be a professional footballer, and now I am. I'm going to make at least one appearance. Played that game, we went well, won 3-1 away, kept my place. And uh, I'd only played about 20 games, and Liverpool were, uh, were looking. And at Chesterfield, Arthur Cox said to me, he says, right, we've had a good uh, offer for you. You're off to Liverpool. Never asked me if I wanted to go. <laughs> <laughs> they wanted the 75,000, which uh, doesn't sound a lot now, but was a lot for the club in that day. So uh, whether I liked it or not, I was going to Liverpool. Yeah. <coughs> Two European Cup winners' medals. Should explain, you were on the bench in 77 and 81, yeah. but you've got those two medals, and that was an incredible team just to be part of that squad? Well, it was, and, uh, and to be quite honest, I was starstruck when I first went there. I mean, it was Wembley 78 when we played Bruges, we won 1-0, one, uh, Kenny Dalglee scored. I was on the bench, could have been coming on at any time, and all I kept thinking was, crikey, this time a year ago, I was in the police force on the beat, not even thinking I'd be a professional footballer. So I was incredibly green and naive, but in a place where I just couldn't believe. And really, you know, my football education started there. And you were part of a great English football side, you know, from a great area. I just wonder, you know, when you're on the bench and your team's winning trophies, how does that feel? Is there any sense of disappointment that you're not out there on the pitch or are you just proud to be involved? Uh, well, the win bonuses were nice. <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, no, you, you always wanted to play. It was, it was an era where, you know, players played, injured or, or not. Ray Clements virtually never missed a game. And Ray taught me how to be a goalkeeper, both in terms of technique, but also mentally, how to approach big games, how to deal with the pressures of football. And uh, he just never, ever got injured. And then you came back to the Midlands, didn't you? Not first to Coventry, <laughs> but to Shrewsbury. The magnet of the Midlands was pulling you back all the time. Well, it was, because I felt then that I knew what football was about a lot more. But, the, you know, if you look at it as a CV, the one thing I needed to do was start playing some games. Nobody was going to take me seriously, having played 200 games for Liverpool Reserves, which it was in those days. So I needed some first-team experience. And Shrewsbury were a good sign in those days. They'd be championship now, Division Two as it was in old money. I went to Shrewsbury and had two fantastic years. And it's a wonderful place, wonderful place to live. Beautiful part of the Midlands. I mean, go and visit. It's, it's a great day out. Yeah, well, you talk about the, the, the beauty of Shrewsbury and you live now in a village outside Coventry. Mm. You, are a, you love your countryside, don't you? Yeah, I do do. And, uh, you know, the village life is nice. It's a little bit quieter. 
and uh, you know, I thoroughly enjoy it. The problem comes when you want to go shopping. You know, <laughs> you've not got to shop around the corner, but uh, something's got to give. But we have got great countryside in the Midlands, haven't we? Fantastic countryside. I mean, depends how far you want to go. I mean, listen, basically the Peak District is regarded as the Midlands. I mean, most people think it's north, but it's the Midlands. You've got uh, the Staffordshire Moors, Cannock Chase, uh, Leicester's a you know, beautiful place as well. And I think sometimes you, you forget what you've got in front of you. Absolutely. And you ended up then after Shrewsbury, coming to Coventry. What were your first impressions of Cov? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> My first impression, well, I met George Curtis. He was the first person that I met. And I was lucky, actually, because he didn't pull me ears or do anything like that. He was, uh, he'd got a reputation for doing that. And he was just a fantastic person. And, and in those 20 minutes, he virtually sold me the club. I thought, this is a great club to join. And uh, been here ever since, really. Away from football, your Midlands masterpiece is in Coventry. What is it and why? Well, I mean, listen, it could be so many things. You've got Stratford around the corner, Warwick Castle, Lemont, uh, Kenilworth Castle. But uh, the one thing I think that's synonymous, particularly with this area in, Co in Coventry, is the cathedral. It's, uh, it's just an incredible place and it just means so much. It means so much to the city of Coventry, what it stands for. It's something that puts Coventry on the map. Yeah. What does it mean for you, personally? Do you remember the Spurs game in 1997? We had to win the last game of the season. Yes. As normal, you'd have a meal. I would then go for a little walk with Brian Burroughs, and we were as nervous as hell. We knew what this game meant. And we were walking just through by the cathedral, and the cathedral doors were open. And I looked at Brian, and Brian looked at me. We never said anything. We both went in, said a little prayer for Coventry. <laughs> Came out and lo and behold, we won the game, stayed <laughs> up. I do think somewhere somebody was looking down on us and thought, yeah, Coventry deserve another few years in the Premiership. Yeah, well, we talked about what the cathedral means to Coventry and that's a, an iconic symbol around the Midlands, around the world, really. What do the sky blues mean to Coventry? I probably found out exactly what the sky blues meant to Coventry the day we won the FA Cup. Are we getting to your Midlands memory now, then? Go on. Uh, well, we're not yet, no. Yeah, but, uh, but I will say this, uh, that it meant more to the city of Coventry than it actually did to the players in terms of what it did for the city. I mean, it was just an incredible place for, I say, two or three months. I mean, people still now talk to me every single day about where they were in 1987 on that FA Cup final day. Always, somebody will come up and say, I was there. <laughs> Go on, that, that leads beautifully then into your Midlands memory. Well, without any shadow of doubt, my Midlands memory is, has got to be the homecoming in 1987. The fans were just brilliant and uh, the houses all around the city, the cars, they're all draped with sky blue flags and scarves and ribbons. And it just became absolutely an incredible place. And that particular day was, well, the whole of Coventry and some more came out to applaud the team home. And uh, I remember we were supposed to do an open-top bus parade. It was supposed to take about 45 minutes, I think. And <laughs> it was three and a half hours later, we still weren't at the council offices. There were just hundreds of thousands of people. You see friends who uh, you play cricket with hanging up a, I don't know, a traffic light halfway up and <laughs> waving to you. And 
things would be thrown into the bus and uh, you know it was just a fantastic time and we had a great time but I think the people of Coventry had a great time as well. I came over to Coventry that day just to witness it because it was such an astonishing victory and a, 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 just a great thing. I wanted to be part of it. And clearly, so many people who don't even go to football just wanted to be part of it because it was an amazing thing for Coventry. It was, and uh, it didn't just last one day. It lasted for weeks and weeks and weeks. My daughter had been born two days uh, before the FA Cup final, so uh, that was a big thing. And uh, so I got... <laughs> We, we were a little bit we were a little bit worried at one time because we thought, what happens if this happens on Saturday the 60? You know, this could be FA Cup final day. What do I do? Anyway, the, the consultant said, you know what, we'll induce two days before, and that's what they did. Suited <laughs> <laughs> both parties. Uh, so, unfortunately, well, probably one of the worst things is that, obviously, my wife, having given birth, couldn't go to the FA Cup final. She was still in hospital, and we'd, we'd got the open-top bus. All of a sudden, we got to Walsgrave Hospital, and we started going round the grounds. So we went round, and sure enough, all the patients, the nurses, the doctors, they were all hanging out the windows, and this was just going round. They were supposed to be ill. <laughs> Uh, it was just, just a fantastic experience and, uh, you know, and, and that was just one stop that wasn't actually uh, organised. They weren't supposed to be going in there, but they did and uh, sure enough, everybody was there. Once you joined Coventry, obviously you could never leave again. That was kind of the golden rule, was it? You you had nearly a decade on the backroom staff as well, goal coping. Well, I goal- never wanted to leave. That was yeah. the key. I mean, you know, I made my life in Coventry and, you know, you see a lot of footballers that will move around every two or three years. That really wasn't for me if I could help it. I don't think it's healthy for family life. And, and thankfully, and it could have gone horribly wrong, but thankfully, you know, that worked out. And I had uh, 16 or 17 terrific years as a player at the football club. Mm. We talked a lot about your football career, but of course you've mentioned cricket as well. And you played cricket. You played first, well, effectively first class cricket, didn't you? For, although Shropshire are not a first class county, no. But you, you've played first class matches. Yes, yeah. as a kid, it was football in in the winter, cricket in the summer. That's what I did. And uh, I also had trials for knots as a cricketer. Uh, spent a year, you know, playing for their Colts team actually. Uh, but a bit like goalkeepers, that when I was that time, I was regarded as being too big, which was laughable. But I had a couple of games for the second team, uh, which I thoroughly enjoyed. But then football came calling, and that really was probably the end of uh, you know a cricket career, if ever I could have made one. But Shropshire, you played in the Benson and Hedges yes. Cup, as it then was. And yeah. That was, although they were minor counties, you were playing mm. against first-class counties, and you took wickets. Yes, uh, played Somerset one year, Viv Richards, Joel Garner and Ian Botham. <laughs> and uh, what a quartet to play against, <laughs> by the way. But I thoroughly enjoyed, you know, playing in those games and, and did get a couple of notable wickets. And in that... Oh, I, go I, on, boast. I've Tell us whose wickets you got. <laughs> well, I've got a picture at home, bowling, and Viv Richards is batting and his leg peg is cartwheeling out the ground. <laughs> I actually bowled him with an in-swinger and, you know, to my dismay, the, the, the umpire stood there, no, no ball. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> I 
And, you know, so this was the best batsman in the world that I'd just uh, got out at the time. But to be fair to Viv Richards, he came up to me, he just went, good pill, man, good pill. He said, I never changed my shot. That was enough for me. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so uh, that was the wicket that never was. But, uh, yeah, Alvin Kalicharan, Martin Moxon, uh, to name but two, there was a few others as well. Away from the sporting world, what do you like to do? Uh, I like a game of golf now. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think you're fine with some sports, but sport is very much, you know, part of my life. No, there are things. I mean, you know, in this day and age now, I'm big into the grandkids. Uh, I've got four young grandkids at the moment, and me and my wife just spend lots and lots of time in and around them. And, you know, that's marvellous. They keep you young. They're good fun. And... Uh, you know, the good thing is, you know, they're not living with you every, every single day. When you are tired, you can go home. <laughs> what is your Midlands manifesto? Oh, difficult one, that one. Uh, I, well, I know one thing. It's not a manifesto, but there's one bugbear of mine, and that's this damn HS2. Certainly south of uh, Coventry, through the Warwickshire countryside, around Kenilworth, where I am, I mean, there's just swathes and swathes of countryside, needlessly for me, just being ripped apart, just gone right through the middle of Warwickshire. And I don't know why. I don't know if it's benefiting. I mean, I think you can get to... Uh, well, I know it doesn't stop in Coventry. You can, you can go to Birmingham and get it. But, uh, I mean, how fast do you want to get to, uh, to London? I mean, one hour, eight minutes from Coventry? It's fast enough, isn't it? <laughs> On a final note, Steve, is, th is there anything that we could do you know, as Midlanders to kind of help foster that sense of a collective identity and let the rest of the country know how good we are? I think with the Commonwealth Games, with the City of Culture, with, with lots of other initiatives that are started, it's actually publicising and championing champion those causes and, and actually people realising just what are on their doorsteps because we have got lots and lots of things to, uh, to be proud of uh, in this city alone. We, we probably should be prouder of our city than, than maybe what we are. Made in the Midlands is an original idea by Andrew Smith, who is also the producer. The researcher is Molly Davidson and the executive producer is Richard Berry. Sound design is by Dan King, and the music is composed by Maya Miller-Lewis. That's me. We're all from the Midlands, like our host, Adrian Goldberg. Thanks very much indeed to Steve Agrizovich. Thank you. Thank you, Adrian. Next up is Jess Phillips, MP. She loved the brutalist architecture of Birmingham's old central library but says its popularity wasn't just the aesthetic of the building or the wealth of reading material inside. I don't know if this audience knows this or the listeners of this podcast know this, but it was a place where teenagers went to have sex. Um, <laughs> trying to study, you know, the life and times of Henry VIII and there would be kids copping off with each other. Why not subscribe to Made in the Midlands wherever you go to get your podcasts to hear from Jess and a host of other famous Midlanders. We'd love to know about your own Midlands heroes and memories. Email us at madeinthemidlands@loftusmedia.co.uk. This was one favourite Midlands memory we collected in Coventry last year, while Steve Grizovich was on the open-top bus to celebrate the Coventry FA Cup win. Being there to cheer the team home was a treasured Midlands memory for thousands. 
We lived in Suffolk when we won the cup. My wife and my two kids, we all jumped in a car and we zoomed up the motorway. There were lots of flags on the bridges as we drove up. Amazing sight, really. And the only thing we had in blue and white was my daughter's pyjamas and they hung them out the window as we drove up the M1. And we spent the night in Coventry. It was just an amazing place to be when we won the cup. Do share the podcast with anyone you think might enjoy it and please leave us a review as well. It all helps to get us noticed. Made in the Midlands is an original commission by the Coventry UK City of Culture 2021, proudly produced by Loftus Media. Thanks for listening. Ta-da! Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.